From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission. Good afternoon, my name is Melissa Hudson Gant, and I serve as the Chief Executive Officer of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Middle Tennessee. Welcome to Just Conversations Nashville, where we are reading how to be an anti-racist and discussing our thoughts about the different chapters that we have read. And I have several nonprofit leaders joining me today, and I'm gonna let each person introduce themselves, Kaki. Yeah, I'm Kaki Friskus-Warren. I work with the Maddox Fund and um, appreciate the work that, um, that Ibram X. Kendi did on how to be an anti-racist. Um, I also appreciated his earlier book, Stamped from the Beginning of the History of Racism in the United States, and commend it to people as well. And Amna? Hi, my name is Amna Osman. I'm CEO at Nashville Cares. It's such a pleasure to be here to have this really important conversation. It's a critical and important conversation, especially uh, during this time in our country. So it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And Ingrid. Hi, I'm Ingrid Cochran. I am a local um, collective impact leader that's focused on trauma. And I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to talk about this topic today. And I thank all of you for joining uh, today to have this most important conversation. And we're here to discuss chapter eight uh, in um, the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And this chapter um, distinguishes it between racist and anti-racist behavior. And I thought just for our audience and kind of to ground our discussion that I would um, share with you um, um, the definition. So, so that we all have some shared understanding. So behavioral racist is one who is making individuals responsible for the perceived behavior of racial groups and making racial groups responsible for the behavior of individuals. And a behavioral anti-racist, one who is making racial group behavior fictional and individual behavior real, um, which is really uh, thought provoking for me in the way that I think about a lot of things. So I'm interested in your thoughts on behavioral racism and anti-racism. Um, Ingrid, do you wanna start and maybe share how you responded when you read this and, and thought about it? Sure, I think that our understanding of racism really needs to be expanded. So right now when we think of racism, we think of individual one-on-one -on -one interactions whereas racism is systemic and is on several layers of, our, of the way that we interact with the world. So I think that it's great to take some time to think about what is the behavior of racism, what does it mean to be anti-racist, and ultimately what we're talking about is understanding that when we talk about large groups, it cannot be just those one-on-one -on -one interactions, it can't be just one individual's behavior, or our perception of the behavior of a group, because when we get to group level interactions, racism is really about policies and also these micro system um, attributes like our values, our beliefs, which are deeply entrenched in the way that we were raised, our American values, um, the environments that we live in, which have absolutely nothing to do with skin color. But because we live in a racist society, we have attached attributes um, and behaviors to skin color um, for many different reasons, survival, um, obviously racism, feelings of uh, superiority. 
uh, and ultimately a social and political gain. And so I think it's great to be able to really um, analyze racism on several different layers, behavior, policy, attitudes, beliefs, not just the covert racism or overt racism that we are used to um, when we think about this topic. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, I think, the relationship between values and policy and how policy drives behavior, which drives values. It's, this, it's a cycle, and, and where do you start to unpack? Aman, what about you? What are some of your thoughts? So I think what really resonated to me is when you start thinking about individuals responsible for perceived behavior of racial groups and making racial groups uh, responsible for the behavior of individuals, I think those are really, those are really ra racist ways when we start to think of a behavior of an individual and how it impacts a group and, and, and the, you know, a group and how they impact an individual. And I think being a, a black woman and having really experienced how, you know, times, you know, I think when Kendi talked about, you know, how he felt of the pressure of feeling that you represent an entire community, um, you know, it, it weighs really hard on you. You kind of really start to, to feel that, you know, especially when your peers and colleagues say to you, you know, you're the poster child working in, you know, an institution or an establishment that you're the only black person or very few black people. It's, it's really challenging and you, you, you start to feel like you can't make mistakes in your failures and what you do um, are really scrutinized and watched very closely and that even if you are performing, you have to perform and work even harder. It, 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 it really is a burden on, on you know, a person of color and especially a, a black person to feel that way all the time and that, that kind of really perpetuates all of the other issues that are in the system, uh, to your point, you know, the policies that are racist, the systems that are racist. Um, so it, it really puts a lot of burden on people and, you know, the whole notion of individual behavior, you know, black behavior, um, thinking of that, that, you know, folks that um, deviate or are not uh, considered part of the norm uh, because of the color of their skin, um, you know, have these kinds of behaviors that are irresponsible. Um, we all have irresponsible behavior regardless of our racial groups. So to really kind of put that notion on it, um, that really creates um, racist societies, racist interactions, and, and people that then start to believe that they are different because of the color of their skin. To me, that, that really resonated with me um, in this chapter about how behavior really affects um, the way we deal and you, know, you put that layer of racism on it, it even gets more profound. And it, that what you shared just made me think about how isolating that is and mm -hmm. how it disconnects us from each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think I'm going to answer that question because I'm a preacher with a story instead of an explanation. Um, um, a member of my congregation is a descendant of Gola community, and many of them are settled around South Carolina, Florida, um, speaking their own language, having their own traditions, and um, and. He has a great deal of pride in his community. And so when he, he's now working on a PhD in sociology. So when he came to town to do his research, he was staying at our place. And he came down and said, Kaki, can I borrow your iron? In a, you know, a seemingly innocent a question, I don't have an iron. And out of that, we started pulling apart what is racism and what is racist behavior and that symbol of an iron. So. I, as a white woman, don't iron iron because I shake my clothes out of the dryer and that's it, I'm going. If 
if I have a wrinkled shirt, it does not reflect on all of white people. They don't say, oh, white people are trashy. This woman has on a wrinkled shirt. And it also doesn't, if I have on a wrinkled shirt, it doesn't set me up for being disrespected as a white woman or um, possibly being the victim of violence. But my friend was taught that in all cases, wherever you go, you're representing your people. So you are going to iron the shirt that's gonna be under your pullover sweater in addition to ironing anything that might be on top of, uh, that people would see. And we, we started thinking about that in terms of he did that because his behavior might, for some people, reflect on his entire community, which he wants to lift up, but also because in his wrinkled shirt, it's that political respectability. If he didn't have, if he didn't present himself, then he might be a victim of violence or disrespect, or he might go into a store and no one would wait on him. And so it was interesting for me how an iron which talks about behavior, how do we attribute individual behavior to groups or make the faulty or he says fictitious assumption that a group has a shared behavior. We don't have shared, I mean, we learned that in our last, uh, most recent election. Groups do not have monolithic behaviors or decision-making, right. so stories. And the weight and the consequences to yeah. what should be an inconsequential decision right. or behavior. Exactly. I have an iron now for my guests. <laughs> now you have an iron. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, was the one of the things that Dr. Kendi discusses in this chapter is the history of standardized testing. So, I'm interested to know if that history was new to you. Was that information um, that you had, and if it was new or any of the information, did that change how you think about standardized testing? And if so, why? Amon, you wanna start? So that was interesting. You know, I've, I've been an educator in higher education and just the, you know, looking at the system, I have two boys um, that have gone through K through 12 in, in you know, in America. Um, I did not study here. So it was kind of interesting coming in to look at seeing how the inequalities that exist in our educational system and how teachers, we teach for the test. Um, that's really how we've been prepared. It's really unfortunate. And when we think about that, the inequities that you know happen, I always say, you know, where you live matters and your zip code matters. Because based on where schools are, whether they're in cities or in suburbs, really affects the kind of education that you receive. Because all educators, you know, even in cities, we have great uh, teachers, we have schools, the buildings are there, but the resources are not available. So really being able to then think about how even people process language, their lived experiences, you know, where they live, and trying to get a test that was actually developed by people who are from one, you know, group or one race, that think it's universal across the board, you know, young kids um, looking at whether they call, you know, a couch or a sofa. So thinking of those kinds of things of how we really look at the inequalities and the disparities that these tests and how racist these policies are. I think our educational system is one of the most racist in the way that we are trying to educate folks. We're not preparing them to really have the good foundation and the building blocks to build up until they get to college. I mean, I teach students that have remedial math and English when they come from the 12th grade into college, and the time and effort that they spend really trying to get past those because the foundation is not there. And then they get to me where I teach human, you know, um, 
um, service and, and, and you know political science, trying to really get them there. They're just broken. They're they're they're, they're feeling frustrated. They're angry because of these inequities that we've created. So. Um, it's really important to really focus on how do you look at the learning of each child? How do you make sure that we're teaching them what is critical and important and providing them what I call the tools and giving, you know, what, and we'll talk later about it, the opportunities for children to thrive mm -hmm. um, and to really advance. And so I think, I mean, the standardized testing, the way he talked about it in the book, I had never heard it laid out that way to kind of take, I had heard about the bell curve and no child left behind and, you know, and PISA, but all of that was, it, it was really interesting to see what we've done over time, thinking in good intentions that we were trying to really build a solid educational system when we were really building policies and systems that were truly racist and really were not for all. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the big thing that it, it just resonated with me and, and kind of really took me by surprise when you see it written that way, so. It really gelled for me to how we're um, defining intelligence and aptitude mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and what a great consequence it is for us to, to have structured it in this way. Ingrid, your thoughts? Uh, I was very familiar with the history of standardized testing um, and IQ testing. So this is something I also teach in higher ed. I teach at Tennessee State University, which is a historically black college or university, and m my students I try to cater my courses to them and their experiences. So they're mostly African-American students. And I use the um, testing, the IQ testing and the intelligence testing on, in World War II as a way for them to understand um, if tests are valid or reliable. And so I use that as an example of an un, you know, a test that's not valid. So, because it's not testing for what they want to test for. So if we're gonna test for intelligence, um, then we have to have other factors, um, you know, on an equal field, on an equal playing field before we can test for intelligence. So if we have a large group and we're testing everyone, um, then we have to account for socioeconomic status. We have to account for um, whatever their uh, educational uh, background is. And so if we put everybody in a bowl like soldiers and of all different races and all different backgrounds during um, segregation, then we would then find that we are really not testing intelligence, we're testing those backgrounds, how those background factors are impacting the you know the outcomes of those assessments and so I use that one so that they can have um, a clear understanding of the information that they're getting in college right so I teach psychology courses my students are coming from all different um, majors so you know some of them are definitely getting this information about the achievement gap where they're understanding that the numbers don't look good based on their skin color and so helping them to understand that because especially those first, uh, you know, breakground studies like that one um, for the soldiers during World War II and others that, you know, if you are a researcher that has a racist worldview, then you are going to find information that supports your worldview. And if we are going to test for IQ without uh, eliminating those background factors like income, and environment, then we are just reinforcing our racist worldview, which was what those who um, did those first tests, like Benet, they had that racist worldview. They believed that um, white people were intellectually superior 
And their beliefs weren't just picked from the sky. There's been a very clear, um, you know, a academic elitist attitude around race um, as far back as the 1700s. So in textbooks, European elites attributed, um, you know, cultural and social and environmental factors to skin color and race and made the concept of race and then told people that they were in a racial category. And of course, they decided that their race was the civilized race and that everyone else was on a different scale with indigenous and um, Africans being what they called savage. And at the, if we look at the social political context of the time, in the 1700s, there's active enslavement of Africans and there's active genocide of the indigenous people. And so it definitely fits the worldview to say that these, these groups are savage and are less than because it supports my actions and my beliefs um, you know, in the world. I'm gonna put myself as the most intellectual and the most um, superior. And then those that I'm actively um, taking advantage of, exploiting, then they're less than and would not be able to survive if it wasn't for me. And so this is, you know, something that's not new. It's not that they're not at fault. People are not at fault for their racist views because they're in a racist system. And so now it's up to systems to change, to kind of make the, the changes. Now that we've, we've done a, a great job of taking research and having it within that social political context. Like now we understand that there's no such thing as a genetic race. Now we understand that before when we thought about genetics, it's really epigenetics, which is the, how our DNA really interacts with our environment. So if our environment is hostile because of racism, then there's gonna be what looks to be racial differences when it's really environmental differences. And I think that, well, I hope that we begin to examine these older landmark studies around lots of different things, not just um, uh, intelligence, and examine it with this understanding that at the time, um, we had a very um, you know, aggressively racist um, worldview. And now that we know better, what does it mean to address this and to go back and um, be more equitable in our understanding of research in general? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's kind of unlearning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm going to say yes and yes. <laughs> um, and it was not new to me either that, um, that intelligence tests were actually quite racially biased. Um, so I'm not going to try to unpack it because y'all did such a great job of it. So I'm going to tell another story. Um, um, my husband and I took custody of a young man when he was 14 who had come to the country without documentation from Guatemala with his mother. And when his mother died, um, it was the village decision, all of us with his extended family, that we would be the best people to take custody. One, because we were documented and we could go into juvenile court without fear, but also because we had health insurance. And with he in our custody, we could do health insurance. So he was definitely raised by the village. Um, but um, when he went to take his ACT tests, he did extremely poorly, um, such that um, requiring him to take it multiple times or requir requiring him or asking him to go to these prep courses would have just been cruel. 
Um, and I agree with you, Ingrid, they were testing his environment, not his intelligence. Um, so when he graduated from high school, he went to a medical assistant program and went to work for a local nonprofit as a medical assistant. Um, and when he was in school, he would send pictures of his, you know, I made a 99 on this test, I made a 106 on this test. And, um, he got to the nonprofit where he's worked, he continues to work as a medical assistant. A couple of years later, there was an opening for a naviga an insurance navigator. So someone who helped people say, are you eligible for 10 care, disability? And so he was working with, with folks um, in that regard. And then about um, three months ago, there was a clinic director um, position that opened up. And, um, he was the successful candidate for that clinic director. He's 25. He is the youngest clinical director they have ever had. Those tests had nothing to do with his intelligence. They had all, everything to do with his um, environment. I like, that's a good way to say it, but his history, his language barriers, his trauma of losing his mother, that, that was not an accurate reflection of this man's intelligence and abilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm which I think brings us around to the next thing for us to talk about. I was really struck in, um, by the difference between an, an achievement gap, rephrasing that, to an opportunity gap, um, which I suspect that we all recognize. I really, like, what were some of your thoughts around that? So we definitely don't have an achievement gap. We have an opportunity mm -hmm. gap. Um, you know, when you think about the opportunities that young folks have as it relates to where they go to school, um, it, it varies. There's huge disparities. I mean, city schools, when you think about how many swimming pools, um, when, you know, kids say, I don't know how to swim, they didn't have that opportunity to learn swimming. Chess club, um, you know, opportunities to intern. You, you'll have a child who's from the suburbs that said, well, I, I took an internship or I went to a study abroad at a corporation or in Paris where you know, a kid from the city, um, the opportunities are not equitable. And so you know, you're gonna go to your church, you're gonna go into a corporation for an internship. Um, you don't have an opportunity to kind of see outside your world and, and where you live to kind of broaden your sphere and experiences. So you get to move in life and your scope is very narrow. And so it's not about achievement. It's because we're teaching for a test, but if we told every educator, forget about the test, would we have different students? Would we have we see the abilities differ, um, not you know by the color of your skin, of how um, children would achieve and advance? It is about your opportunity, and the other thing is you know your access and you know poverty, other social determinants pay, play a huge role, in, you know including racism. We don't like to call it that. Racism plays a significant role in racist policies and how our educational system is set up to you know not give everybody the opportunities that they deserve to thrive and to be able to have good education from the foundation all the way up. And so until we do that, I think achievement gaps and all that stuff we're talking about, investing time and resources, is not going to get us to where we want to go because all good inten intended folks, including presidents, have tried to do educational reform. Why are we still, in this day and age in 2020, don't have equitable education and advancements from an opportunity perspective for every student regardless of the color of their skin. We need to ask ourselves that question. So it's not to say we haven't thought about it and resources matter, money matters where we put it, technology, opportunities of access. Look at just what's happening now with um, COVID, the COVID pandemic. Students have to stay at home and they have to learn through a virtual platform. 
how many children have access to computers or have ever been on a virtual platform? I mean, we all work for nonprofits, and we can talk about this later. The amount of barriers that people experience to access services because they don't know how to use these virtual platforms. They've never been taught. They've never been exposed to them. They've never had the opportunity. But the kids from the suburbs who went to, sub, you know, they're all sitting there. They know how to get on. They know how to access all these different learning tools, um, you know, online. So it, it's a real problem, and it's a concern when we start to think about it. If we were so far behind from an opportunity perspective prior to COVID pandemic, what are we going to do thinking moving forward at this point where we even have more barriers and more issues that are going on because of now technology is critical in order for you to advance educationally. Mm -hmm. And not everybody has that opportunity. Ingrid, mm -hmm. do you think that shifting our focus from an achievement gap to an opportunity gap can create avenues for us to create anti-racist policies? I think it's possible. Um, I'm a bit of a pessimist <laughs> when it comes to real change um, because real change does require equity and I think at this point we should be fairly um, secure in our understanding that America is not big on equity. Um, even the push or the way we conceptualize racism in general is built on equality, right? And that's great. You know, it's good if we can, if everyone was treated the same and everybody had the same opportunities, that would be awesome. But that's not what we have. And that's not what we've ever had. And there has been no real push to make that happen because every time we get to the point of equity, right, when it comes up, when we, when we have opportunities to put it into place, um, there's a pushback. And it's, it's a very real pushback. It is mostly around funding and it is mostly around those who have funding and power um, saying, no, 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 we need equality. We can't give more to this group, right? Even though we have traditionally taken more from this group and we have long underinvested in this group. And what would we expect there? You know, we can't expect there to be any differences around the gaps that we have always had in this country if we're not willing to do anything different. Uh, and we are not, at this point, willing to do anything different. We're not willing to put our money where our mouth is. And, and even when we do, there's, it's, it's not fully actualized because we don't want to admit that we're racist. So we come up with great interventions that are very much research-based and evidence-based. And then we take these interventions and it's time to implement them with real people in the real world, not the white college students that the uh, interventions were um, done on in the, in the first place. When it's in the real world and we're trying to close these gaps, that's when we hit on um, the fact that there's teacher bias, that those that, are, that came up with the interventions were biased, uh, and that we are not really willing um, at this point to make equity a real thing. And also it would make a shift in our understanding of where the problems lie. We are focused on fixing the families, fixing the children, right? We think we need to be strength-based with families and we need to push for um, ways that families can change their habits. Um, and so we are thinking, oh, we're gonna be, you know, strength-focused with families, but we're not deficit-focused with our systems. Our systems are the problem. Um, not those individuals, not the families. Our systems need to be revamped and 
um, we are very much clinging to our systems. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all represent the nonprofit community that's part of this gathering, this discussion, um, and whether intentionally or unwittingly, I think a lot of, many of us in the nonprofit community or organizations and the ways in which we operate and serve our community have been operating with um, racist uh, structures and policies. And I'm interested to know what, how you think the nonprofit community can switch from an achievement gap focus to an opportunity gap fo focus, and how is it that we should be driving change? How is it that we can work on ourselves? Yeah, I, I think that each nonprofit ha is at a perfect time to be asking those exact questions. And, um, you know, it, it spans everything. It's how, how do we um, make job announcements? How do we list job requirements? How do we disclose salary um, ranges? All of those things um, either create opportunity or they keep the current system locked in place. Same thing is with board members. And we recently wrote, rewrote our board um, descriptions to talk about life experience. It's not just what, what, do you, what is your profession, but what is your life experience that you can bring to this board? And I certainly know that's true when you're, when you're choosing staff members as well. Um, and, and then I, it really is like the easy part for the not in the nonprofit sector is to look at policies and practices. Really, the harder thing is changing culture. And I think that is requires intentionality, determination. Um, and I think leaders having a support system so that they will keep moving forward. It's, it's, a, it is, um, the time is right now to be making those moves and it needs to be a commitment for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And I know the Maddox Fund has um, done a lot of work to, to give that support. We're still a work in progress, really. And this year what we're doing is just an equity justice audit of our practices. And you know, I will have to look at the fact that all the, since I'm the founding director, all the practices that are in place are ones that I put in place. The racist structures that are there are ones that I helped put there. And so now it's about dismantling it and, and building liberating systems to take their place. Mm -hmm. Amon, any thoughts about the nonprofit community? Yeah, I think I commend you for really talking about, you know, the, the system and the policies that really perpetuate racism within the walls of our nonprofits. Um, you, you know, you're absolutely right. We have to move to anti-racist organizations and really want to do the work, and this is the time, and you're absolutely right. As leaders, we, we, we have to really focus on ourselves first and see how are we perpetuating those policies? How are we the ones incorporating those policies or even creating those policies? And from you know, an equity standpoint, from the hiring, from you know, mentoring and coaching our staff to really building them, from recruiting uh, board members, from looking at do we mirror the populations and the communities that we serve? And if we don't, let's have a really honest and authentic conversation are the programs that we're offering in the communities even you know the right programs and are they benefiting our communities because we also you know we talk about the achievement gap with students we have funders we do what the funders ask us i say it's a prescribed racist policies that we put in place so we can be able to cater to the funders and what they want us to do but are we really moving the needle and really helping the people that we're serving by what we're doing and really assessing and pushing back and saying this is not working for our communities because of these reasons, because we've taken the time to dismantle racism, to talk about what are the barriers and to say to the funders, this is what needs to happen because we've done this work. 
If we can do that collectively, then to your point, we can start to change the systems and the institutions. But until then, we're perpetuating the same thing. So I, I think it's a really great time for us to really, as nonprofits, step back and really assess. I mean, this is one way to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. We need to come together, and we need to have what I call the courageous conversations uh, together to really understand what is happening and how are we showing up, you know, and what are we doing as leaders to really work on ourselves, to move ourselves from racist spaces to anti-racist spaces, and to have conversations about what we bring to the table. And, and I think until we do that, um, we're going to continue just in kind of what I call the vicious cycle. But there's hope and there's positivity. This is, you know, a time that we have had more conversations about race and really called it what it is than we have ever had. And so I really commend us for coming together. And I think as nonprofits, because we serve people who have are marginalized, who have a lot of needs, and we, we're, you know, it's about servant leadership. We, we, we hear them, we trust them, we meet them where they're at. We start to get to know them. See, that's the other thing getting to know where people are, what their experiences are. So I think it's really, we are more equipped than I think any sector at this time to really come together and to have these critical, important conversations. Um, and we t have them across funders, um, you know, different sectors of what we provide as nonprofits. And to not look at ourselves as competitors, but to look at ourselves as community, you know, groups and bodies that really want to create the change and want to leave an anti-racist um, space so we can make it better for, for the people that we serve. And, and, and I think we're on the road to that, but there's a lot of work to do. And to your point, we have to really be honest and ready to, you know, kind of um, experience what will illuminate as we start to peel that onion and to find out what really is going on in our institutions. Mm -hmm. so. So the time is now. Ingrid, I know you said that you are a pessimist, but do you feel that there's hope? Well, I think there's always hope. I think, I mean, obviously we've made a lot of gains um, as a country. Uh, so there's hope. It's, it's slow, but there have been gains. And I think that nonprofits um, really need to start rethinking their role. Um, and so a lot of it is about charity, right? And I think that that's great. Charity is, is wonderful. I'm not saying that, it's, that it, that's not the way to go. But when we think about us as a system, we really need to think about the fact that we owe black people and indigenous people, our country, our systems, we owe them. We owe them money, we owe them reparations. We, it is our duty to rebuild these communities because these systems are the reason why they are in this state. There is fault, there is blame, there is a source, there is root causes. So then you need to be in the space where it's not that I'm being charitable or that I'm helping someone out, it's that I am riding past wrongs, um, that I have to do this because of the debt that I owe. And until we get to that point where we really see this as a debt that's owed, um, and, you know, we're not a country that's great with our debts. And so this is all a part of our, our identity. All of this is a part of our identity. We are a part of the system. We need to see the system for what it is, and we need to pay our debts. Mm -hmm. that, that's really powerful. And actually, I think the nonprofit community um, plays a unique role. We are 
uh, and from my perspective, kind of the glue that brings together a lot of different communities. Um, we have the, um, our government, we have our corporate community, um, we have our faith-based communities all kind of coalesce around um, the nonprofit sector. And as leaders, we do have a mandate um, to bring people together to have these important discussions and talk about how is it that we are paying the debt that we owe. Um, to our fellow citizens and how is it that we're creating um, the community that creates opportunity and addresses the opportunity gap for our citizens that um, have barriers through, you know, because of these racist systems that, that we have created and in great part have been perpetuating. Right. I love, Ingrid, how you talked about, it, you talked about the word charity, which creeps, keeps white supremacy locked into place using that word. And so many people are talking about how do we how do we move charity from the center and put justice in the center? It's a very different way of looking at fundraising and what kind of um, racist patterns we fall into in, in our fundraising practices. But it also challenges people who are um, making gifts to say, is this a charity or is this a charitable thing I'm doing or am I promoting justice and new policies, procedures, practices that advance people? And they, that's where the opportunity gap is closed, is with justice, with not justice. with charity. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much again for joining us for this really important conversation. Um, we, for more information and for more episodes, you can go to www.justconversations.org. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.